with me as we continue our series on the Beatitudes. We come to the sixth uh, Beatitude in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as we've been doing, as we go through this, we'll read all of them up to this. And so we begin in chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that being Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew writes, and God speaks to us. You may be seated. John Owens, in the preface to one of his uh, famous books, and he was back in the time he was a Puritan, he wrote this warning note in the preface to those who would dabble and decide whether they wanted to, to get the book or not. And he had this note, he said, if you are, like many in this pretending age, a sign or title gazer, and you come into challenges only to go out again, then you've had your entertainment. Farewell. So not exactly the the greeting in a book, the preface in a book to to get your book on the bestseller list. He was saying this is going to be hard stuff. If you're not willing to engage in it, invest in it, be gone. This is not for you. Farewell. And in some sense, That's what Jesus does often with many of these would-be disciples who come to him and make it look like, I I want to take part. But Jesus, in a sense, says to many of them, if you are not willing to be all in, to give all your guts, to give all your heart, farewell, be gone, this is not for you. And yes, there is grace upon grace, in the gospel, would never, never deny that. But there are times where that grace elicits, requires, even demands response. And so today we look at the next beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we will get a bit of that sense. A few weeks ago I, I told you with the, uh, the beatitude of the poor in spirit, that they, they, in a sense, breathe out humility. This one is saying that the disciple will breathe in purity. They will take in purity. They have a focus there. And we've also said, as the guys have preached through this, that this is, this is a chain of beatitudes. This is not eight separate people, eight different people. These are links in what the disciples should look like. They go together. The one who is poor in spirit will have a brokenness. He will mourn over his sin, as Lad has taught us. And then that person who mourns over their sin will have a meekness, a a, a strength in their relationship with the Lord that Andy preached on. Then that's going to manifest itself in a hunger, a thirst 
for righteousness, a passion around that that Daniel gave us. And then there's going to be a mercy. There's going to be a mercy extended to others as we have received mercy that David Cole presented to us. And fortunately, Jesus gives us this one this morning. In large part, there were lots of people asking about this in one way or another. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, the the lawyer, the rich young ruler, asking different questions, but at the heart of it, they're asking, how can I see God? How can I be viewed as pure? So many things in life are labeled as pure, Pure maple syrup, pure gold, pure as the driven snow, good old pure spring water. This one was interesting. Looked at this. The source of this pure life water is from the public water supply in Chesterfield, South Carolina. (laughs) But don't worry, it's been purified using either reverse osmosis or distillation, one or the other. But then also, it's purified water, but it's also got some calcium chloride, sodium bicarbonate, and magnesium sulfate. So, bicarbonates and sulfate, I think I'll pass. I think I'll get some pure water from the, uh, the water fountain later if I, get, if I get thirsty. But point is, we all want purity, whatever that might be, because we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we haven't really said what is pure as far as the Bible goes. What is that? We just know we want it, whatever it is. Rudyard Kipling, famous author, said this. He said, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. They taught him everything he knew. So these six Honest men, like Kipling said, will help us as, uh, as far as an outline for our passage. So you have an outline there in the bulletin if you want to use it. Those are the questions that we will ask of the passage. The what, why, when, how, where, and who. So first, what, what is purity? There is what we could call a primary, a primary or primal purity that's found in God alone. He is completely pure 100%. Anything else is, in a sense, derived from him, as the sun is, is, and then anything else is but rays that come from the sun. That's not what this passage is talking about because we can't be that. Adam and the angels were created pure, in some sense, before the fall, but we're not going back to that state So that's not what this passage is talking about. And then for the Christian, the Christian, the believer, is in some sense set apart, we could say positionally pure, imputed with the righteousness of Christ. They're pure in that sense, and that's an infinitely important sermon. But for another day, that's not exactly what this passage is talking about. Some understand purity as sincerity, And that's getting close to what we're after here, except that you could be 100% sincere and be 100% wrong. All we need to do is look at the prophets of Baal who slash and cut themselves as they worship Baal. So that's completely wrong in their sincerity. 
So good old Merriam-Webster can help us a good bit as far as what is the purity that we're after. He said that purity is not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. So that really helps us in the right direction here because the purity that we're looking at here is a cleansing, a cleansing that occurs in the believer. The believer is like a, a chunk of gold created in God's image. So there's gold there, but there are impurities all over the place because of the stain of sin. So there's that God-given grace that is just mixed and mingled with sin. So there's a cleansing that's involved. A few weeks ago, Daniel, when he preached, he mentioned the book Revenant with Hugh Glass and how Hugh Glass had been mauled by the bear and went on from there. And as Paul Harvey says, you know, the line about the rest of the story, I said, I, I got to know what's the rest of the story. So I got that book and, and read it. And if you haven't, uh, the, I thought the ending was maybe not great, so don't worry about it if you haven't read it yet. But there was a very powerful illustration uh, in that. Um, Hugh Glass goes along after being mauled and torn up uh, by the bear. And he goes from crawling to hobbling to just barely making it along for about a month. And as he's going, he's so concerned about the massive wounds in the torn open throat that he has uh, and caring for those, he makes it to an Indian village and gets captured. The Indians, as they're examining him, they look at his back where the bear had just ripped open massive wounds in his back and Hugh Glass didn't really know to even look at those. He just felt some pain there. But the Indians reach in and show him maggots in his back. I said, that's disgusting, that's nasty. And Donna, my wife, being a nurse, said, ah, the maggots are there, they're, they're eating the dead flesh, that's a good thing. I said, that's still nasty, that's awful. So, but the Indians, what they did, they took something even nastier, some concoction that they had, and they pour it into his back three or four times. And the pain that Hugh Glass experiences is, is awful, like a searing pain down into his, in, in his organs almost. But he's cleansed. It gets rid of the maggots in him. He is cleansed and in some sense purified. And so one who's cleansed, who's really cleansed, doesn't want to go back to being dirty again. You might think of that is, is with your house. How many times do you have people over, you get your house all cleaned up and looking nice, and say, well, we're, we're going to keep it this way. Maybe it lasts a month, maybe it lasts a week, maybe it lasts an hour. But you could say that it was consecrated, it was devoted to keeping that house clean how much more should we as believers who have gone through a cleansing where Christ has bought us, paid for us, set us aside, be focused on having a purity around that? Like the gold that's gone through uh, removing the dross a thousand degrees at times for gold to be purified. That is, that is the, the kind of cleansing that the believers should be viewing their, themselves as, what, what God has done in and through us. So, in summary, as far as the what goes, purity involves cleansing, 
and it is consecrated and set apart for the right thing. Consecrated and set apart for the right thing. Where? So we talk about the what. Where does it take place? That's simple. Our passage tells us it takes place in the heart. The heart is the center. The heart is the core. It's what pushes the blood through our veins, our arteries. Our lives flow out of what's in our heart, and our heart must be in tune with God. To be in tune with God is our will, our commitments, our desires, our affections. They are, they are in tune. They're in line with God. If you come upon a stream and the stream is polluted, that might be okay. Don't drink that water, but you go up to the source. You go to the spring. Ah, I'll drink from the spring, and I'm okay. But if the spring is polluted, then everything else after it is, and that is why the heart is so important given that everything comes out of it. So why? Why does God say to be pure in heart? That's simple. It's God's goal for us, and in Romans 8, it says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, predestined to be pure, predestined to be holy. So this passage isn't there so that we can now say to our non-reformed friend, aha, see, there's predestination in the Bible, I win. No, it's much more important than that. It's saying you weren't predestined for holiness because you were holy. It's that you're predestined, you're set aside to holiness is the preposition there. You are set aside because something is going to change in you. God has bought you and desires that change. And that changes chiefly in the heart. If not, we're like the Pharisee that Jesus said is a whitewashed tomb. Like a, like a stainless steel refrigerator, looks beautiful on the outside. You go to open it and you taken back because somebody left a bunch of rotten milk in there. If it's not pure in the core, it's just a bunch of junk. If the, land, if the Lord doesn't change a man's heart, you could say, we're just, we're, we're working on a facade. We're just swabbing the deck of the Titanic. You're hanging bil- uh, pictures on a burning building if the core is not changed. So the why is because God commands it, he deserves it, and he desires it in us. So how? Often being practical as we are, we, we want to know how. You're talking about I need to be pure. How, how am I to be pure in heart? And we'll have a few points on that. If anyone in here is a, is a project manager, you've probably heard of this massive book called the, the PMBOK, P-M-B-O-K, Project Manager Book of Knowledge. It was in a class about a week and a half ago, and there's 47 processes to any project. And this 500-page book had details on all of them. But the thing that impressed me most was our instructor was extremely uh, sharp and knowledgeable of this area. And he even played a game, in a sense, at one point in the class. And said, ask me anything. Somebody asked him, well, where is this process on this part of doing something with stakeholders? And he'd tell you, It's on third paragraph, page 112. The guy could tell you anything in that 500-page book, chapter and verse. And I say chapter and verse because, that's what I thought, if he knows this book so well, how well do I know 
the word of God, which is truly the source of life, which is truly what tells us how to be pure. As Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. So the first point on the how is a pure heart strives to know God. A pure heart strives to know God. It sounds simple enough. But if we're if, being ignorant, how can you love what you do not know? How can you have faith in something that you don't know? And admittedly, a, a willful ignorance that says, I don't care about that. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm just not going to worry about it. Intentionally put it aside. That's much worse than, than what we might call a lazy ignorance. Okay, so admittedly, there are different kinds there. But we should strive to know God. One famous author on prayer said this. She just exhorts people. She says, let's not get bogged down on whom or what we pray to. Let's just say prayer is communication from our hearts to the great mystery or goodness. We could call it this force, not me, or for convenience, just call it God. Now, her intention is to get people involved in prayer. That's a good thing. But how can we truly pray to someone that we don't know? So the important point is a pure heart strives to know God. And then secondly, if we have a heart that strives to know God, a pure heart does not harbor unwanted guests. A pure heart does not harbor unwanted guests. So in biblical language, Psalm 66 says, do not harbor iniquity in our hearts. So the question is, does sin, does sin find safe harbor in your heart? Is it a welcome visitor, a welcome ship or voyager in your heart? We have the sin nature that in some sense is still living in us, but do we also seek to live in sin ourselves. If I had a young child here, you'd probably play that game with them every once in a while where you just have them put their two thumbs together and then you just grab a hold of their thumbs and you have them completely in your control. They can't go anywhere. In the same sense, the devil, with the one or two sins that we're not willing to give up, he just grabs hold and we're sunk if we are not willing to give them up, if we harbor them as guests. It's one thing to sin carelessly. It's not good. But there is one where we make provision or plan for sin. That is harboring sin in our hearts. So one who strives to know God avoids harboring unwanted guests will also be willing to take on surgery. What do we mean there? A pure heart is willing to be examined and even cut. Search me, Lord, and know me. Cut me. Do the surgery, whatever it takes. If there is something there, get rid of it that I might be healed. We do that with our physical lives. All the more we should with our lives with the Lord. So application would be this. Simply to take this one. Are you willing to be cut in order to be healed, to be exposed? Why not? In essence, our lives are lived before the Lord before, rather than other men, so we should be willing to be exposed. But this week, 
Ask somebody. Ask a friend. Give me an MRI. Give me an MRI. Tell me, where do you see lacking in me a, a, a purity? Where am I lacking in purity in my heart? Expose it for me. You don't get to make the cuts. The Holy Spirit will do that. But I'm inviting you to give me an MRI and let me know where I need change. Fourthly, a pure heart, after taking on that surgery, won't settle for counterfeit resemblances. Won't settle for counterfeit resemblances. What we mean there is this. If you go underwater in a pool, a lake, you're going to go under 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it might be, you know you're coming up. I'm going to stay under for a bit. I'm going to come up. I'm going to get air. But one who has a counterfeit resemblance in dealing with the sin is saying, you know that sin I'm wrestling with? Maybe two months, six months, I'm going to keep it under. But then I'm going to let it up for air and breathe and inhale it again. Could be talking about porn, but could be talking about all kinds of other sin. In my own life, I see this as, as I wrestle with complaining. I don't, I don't want to be a complainer. That's, that's sin. And I, and, I, and I fall into that so often. I might think, oh yeah, I made it a while dealing with that. But if I let that back up for air, that's just a counterfeit resemblance there. So what is the sin that you need to defeat and are you okay with that sin just being a tenant for life that comes up for air, keep it down for a while, comes up? That's a counterfeit resemblance. It's a counterfeit resemblance. And it might be that we, we forget the sin in a sense because it's now socially unacceptable. It doesn't look right. But then we replace it with something else because we never got to the heart of it. That's a counterfeit resemblance also, Joash in the Old Testament was a young king, age seven and eight. He comes to be a king. He lives a pure life while Jehoiada, the priest, is around. Jehoiada dies. Joash goes into sin because he doesn't have the one around him. And, and, and so it's questionable what his re, uh, relationship really, really was. But he had a counterfeit resemblance. And then the final point on the counterfeit resemblance is just the exhortation, don't give sin a chance. Don't give sin a chance. Don't come close to it. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, fiery furnace, they go into the furnace. They live because, in a sense, Jesus comes in there with them. God protects them, saves them. Who died? The ones who were just kind of on the outside. Oh, let's just look and see. And some of the men around there die. They get torched. Don't go near sin or places that tempt. So I was, oh, I keep falling into this sin. Yes, it's because we put ourselves in situations where we should never be. Finally, on the how, the point that there's an outward reverence in an inwardly pure heart. An outward reverence that comes out of an inwardly pure heart. And we can see that manifested in many ways. I mean, we could take music even. 
There might be somebody's heart that's motivated towards, oh, I love this kind of worship music in, in, uh, in church, whether it's hymns, psalms, um, and somebody else would say, oh, I'm about um, praise music. Whatever it is, hopefully that's coming out of an inwardly, inwardly pure heart. And then there's also submission to each other. Your inwardly part, pure heart motivates you to love this kind of worship music. That's your outward reverence. For me, it's this. And there's a, an agreement in that, that I see your heart in this, and I can accept that. Also, that inwardly pure heart that motivates the outward reverence, the passion for God. David told his wife as he, as he was worshiping before the Lord, and she comes in, you're looking like a fool. You're looking like a fool. She was embarrassed. Now, his intention wasn't to, to, to mock her or anything like that. He was worshiping out of his heart. And he said, if that's vile, I'm going to be all the more vile because I'm doing this unto the Lord. I'm doing this unto the Lord. And for the youth, a couple simple points there. The, the, the inwardly pure heart and the outward reverence, don't worry about what others think if this looks cool to walk with Christ and the outward manifestations of what that is. Don't worry about what that, if that looks cool. Live for the Lord. And don't scoff at the purity, scoffing, using that biblical word, don't scoff at somebody else who's looking to live in a pure way. Don't make fun of them. If you do, you may hurt their walk with the Lord and stifle that. So often with the youth, one person who takes a little bit of a stand will have years of impact down the road. I know so many of us as, as adults would say, I remember that one young person, the stand they took on this issue, and they were embarrassed about it, with it but, but they stood for the Lord, and that impacted me now for 10, 20, 30 years later. They had an impact. So youth, you with an inwardly pure heart, can have an impact with outward reverence. So the simple fact is God calls us, he wants us to be holy. Our lives should show purity, should show holiness. It's what sets us apart from the rest of creation, a rock, a bird, a tree, an animal. They can't be holy. They can't be a pure, have a pure heart. That's one of the things that God has given us. So now we get to the who. In a lot of ways, this is one of the most startling of the Beatitudes because of what comes after this. Shall see whom? Shall see God. Shall see God is a blessing of this Beatitude. Now, 1 Timothy 6 says of God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So in some sense, it's saying, well, we can't really see God, obviously in all his glory, because it would kill us now. So nobody's seen him in that sense. And often for the unbeliever, as you talk with your friend who's an unbeliever, they claim, you can't see God, I can't see God, therefore he doesn't exist, and I don't believe, and because I don't believe, he's not there. Show me God on my terms, or else I won't believe. So we wrestle through that with the unbeliever as far as seeing God and, and what that looks like uh, for today. But we also know in, in the Bible, Jacob wrestles with God. 
And so in some sense, he's seeing something of God there. Moses saw the back of God. God gives him just enough glory to give him a taste to carry him through, but not so much that, again, that it would destroy him. So we are limited. We are limited in the extent that we can see God. Jesus told his disciples, you see me, you've seen the Father. So we can see God now through faith with the eyes we have now. Later in heaven, with glorified eyes, we will see him in his infinite glory. And we can, we can rest and we can trust in that and maintain faith in that and not give up on it. As C.S. Lewis says, even though I hold this, this, uh, this shell around this seed, I can't see the seed or the, the tree that's going to come out of it in the end, I don't throw away the seed. I hold on to it. I hold on to the shell that encloses what is yet to become. I hold on to that in faith. And then finally, when? The last of Kipling's questions for us. When do we see God? The passage says we will be seeing God. In one sense, we will see God in heaven. But what about now? Do you see God now? In that verse, the Greek, the tense of it is actually saying, will be seeing or shall be seeing. So we can see, experience in a limited way, God now. Do you see Jesus in the face of the sick, the prisoner, the weak, the widow? Jesus said, in the least that you do that for them, you do it unto me. And yet, so many times, we need to remove the cataracts from our eyes to see, to take out the plugs in our ears to be able to hear God working. There are so many things that obstruct us. On a humorous note, years ago, I, I did the Grandfather Mountain Marathon, and that marathon finishes up on Grandfather Mountain, and you've, you've done a uh, really high climb there at the end, and you come out on this field, and it's amidst the Highland Games. So you've got... Uh, these big Scottish guys in, in kilts throwing the telephone poles, the caper toss, launching those things around. And so at the marathon, we, we finished with the last lap up on the field. And as I'm finishing, just feeling awful, I hear this screeching noise, the screeching music. It's like, oh, man, that's awful. I just want to get out of here. Afterwards, I realized that the screeching was actually bagpipes. And bagpipes are my favorite instrument. And I think it was Amazing Grace they were playing. And I'm, that's screeching. I realized afterwards, oh my goodness. I am not in tune with God. I am not in tune with God in that moment. Likewise, uh, Hendrickson, in a commentary he has, he gives the illustration of a hunter who has no musical knowledge being in the forest, and hearing the roaring of the wind. So what comes to mind for him is, ah, wind that will scare the rabbit out of the thicket, and I'll be able to shoot it. His companion Mozart instead hears a majestic swelling of harmony from God's great organ because he's more in tune 
with what to hear there. So the point being, we must be in tune with God to see God. And that's what the purity of heart is, being in tune with God. So our application, I go back just to make it tangible. I want each of us this week, have somebody give us the MRI, say, where am I lacking in purity? Where am I lacking in purity? Help me with that. Now, I said the big idea, basically, is being in tune with God. I'm with you, though. I know that's easier said than done. Easier said than done. I've had a rough and crazy week and another one coming ahead. And it's hard to see out from the weeds. I know you guys are there, too. But yet God calls us to do that. And if he's calling us to do that, it's possible It's possible or else he would not call us to it. And amidst the weeds of the day-to-day, of the week-to-week, there are opportunities he gives us to see him working. For you, for me, God's in it. God's in it. And for the believer who continues to wrestle through this, through the grace of God, there's a glorious promise that the clear sight The no longer dim vision is coming. It's on the horizon. Job, struggling amidst many more weeds and difficult times than we would ever have, cries out. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And after my body has decayed, yet I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. Let us pray. Our Father, we live day to day, moment by moment, in struggles, in victories, in many things that are good, in many things that are hard, in many things that are not good. And you call us, you call us as your children, as your disciples, to be pure in heart. And therefore, it is possible because you would not give us something that we cannot do through your spirit. We also realize that it is We could say infinitely hard without your spirit giving it to us, without us being redeemed in Christ first. So we pray for any that are not in Christ, that they would realize it is impossible. I have no hope apart from Christ. May they turn to you for those of us wrestling, struggling in the weeds, would you give us grace this week that we might see you in the face of someone else, see you working in the circumstance, depend on you all the more. Lord Jesus, would you grant that? In your name we pray, amen.